Three, two, one. Uh, you know, I've never fixated on the proper drink for autumn. Uh, I sometimes do Manhattans, but they're also a lot of work. Which is a terrible name. I think they're all kind of terrible names, but another Pulitzer Prize winning idea <laughs> I had. Should we just forget about the movies and talk about <laughs> alcohol? Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. In today's episode, we will be covering 1983's Superman 3. Directed by Richard Lester, starring Christopher Reeve, Richard Pryor, Jackie Cooper, Mark McClure, Annette O'Toole, Annie Ross, Pamela Stevenson, and Robert Vaughn. Margot Kidder also makes a small appearance in the film. I'm sure we'll have more to say in a moment. Welcome to the show. Jason, do you have any production notes that you want to you wanna get to before we uh, embark yeah, well, on this? Well, actually, I don't know how much research that you did, um, but I, I think I probably have some information that some things that you don't know. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure um, that's true. Well, interestingly, um, Superman 3, which was greenlit immediately because Superman 2 was such a big hit. Ilya Salkind, the executive producer, the son of Alexander, you know, one of the two tight wads, came up with a... He actually wrote a treatment for this one that was actually very ambitious. Um, it, it's a very cluttered treatment, so I'll try to I'll try to rehearse it for you quickly and from memory. But his original idea was that Superman three would include the introduction of Supergirl, and it, it would begin with uh, Clark's on Earth, and of course now he's single and he's no longer with Lois. Okay. But uh, um, Lana Lang, his his uh, childhood high school sweetheart or pseudo sweetheart. Okay. Gets a job at the Daily Planet and as the secretary. And so he starts to kind of uh, relate to her. In the meantime, in inner space, in the city of Argos, Supergirl, Kara, I believe, is uh, somehow gets taken out of that city mm. and is captured by this mechanical creature named Brainiac, which you've... I do know who that is. Finn, do you know what Supergirl's name is? Can you say what her name is? Kara Zor-El. Brainiac is a psychomaniac who likes to destroy worlds. That's right. That's right. Hey, good, Finn. Later. Thank you for your contribution. He probably could have written the treatment uh, better he than Ilya. <laughs> so uh, Brainiac ends up raising Kara, and they have this father-daughter relationship, which soon blossoms into love. When... Come on, Brainiac. <laughs> that's really <laughs> creepy. That's, Kara... that's really, that's really uh, Woody Allen of him. That... Yeah. Well, when Kara discovers his true colors, she flees to Earth looking okay. for her. I'm not sure if they're cousins in this treatment, but she, she goes to Earth uh, looking for Kal-El. She finds him. They develop a connection. Uh, but then Brainiac comes to Earth looking for her, and he is jealous of Superman. And so he uses his wicked technology to mm -hmm. change Superman's personality so that he's a wicked, evil a normal person, and uh, <laughs> which actually is one of the events that actually remained in the film, where Superman begins kind of wreaking havoc on the on the planet on the planet Houston, and Kara has to try to stop him. Oh wow! Yeah, and she is unable to do so because she cares for him. So she begs Brainiac to let him go. Mm -hmm. Brainiac agrees that he will do it if she uh, swears to love only him. Okay. So Superman is returned to normal. He then hides Kara back in time in a medieval castle. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This um, is an ambitious treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying it out loud, I just, 
is kind of weird. But so then Clark Kent, uh, who Brainiac does not know is Superman, Clark Kent confronts Brainiac. Or no, uh, back up. Brainiac brings this this creature from another dimension, Mister Mitzoplik, which okay, I've yeah. never I've never been able to say the name, but it's I famous just say Mitzoplik and just let it just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he begins uh, tormenting Superman, and then Clark Kent goes to Mister Mitzoplik, and who and he doesn't know that Clark Kent is Superman, and he tricks Mister Mitzoplik to take him back in time to this medieval castle where apparently Lana and Jimmy are also have been taken back into that time. Because Lois, by the way, has left the Daily Planet, was part of this treatment. So he, he tricks Mr. Mitzaplik to take him back to this time period. Okay. Where Superman then faces off with Mr. Mitzaplik, gets him to say his name backwards, and they are transported back to this time where Superman and Supergirl have the face off with Brainiac and his supercomputer. Okay. Which is the other plot point that remained in the film. And that was the original idea that that Ilya Salkind had for the movie. It was decided that it was too expensive to make, yep. and so they decided to go a different direction. They hired David and Leslie Newman. They wrote one of the drafts of the original Superman. They ended up writing the shooting script for Superman 2. Yep. And they wrote this screenplay start to finish. So one of the reasons why Superman 3 is kind of an interesting film is that it's actually written by the people the Salkinds originally wanted to write it, mm -hmm. and it's directed by the guy they originally wanted to direct it. Yep. So you could you could almost say that Superman 3 is what the original film would have looked like if Richard Donner had not showed up. Yeah, that's the only reason why the film is interesting, because what's on the screen doesn't, doesn't quite work, is what I want to say. Sometimes it doesn't work in a small way, and sometimes it doesn't work in a really big way. I have to say, uh, I thought I liked this movie when I before I embarked on this on this viewing of it. For a, for a long time, I I thought Superman four was the was the more unpleasant viewing experience, um, yeah. and what you just told us about that's an interesting idea. That script, that convoluted script. I mean, it's better. I think the outline of it is better than what they give us. What they give us is a, a media tycoon, kind of. Not even that really is he. He's just a he's just a generic businessman. Uh, Ross Webster. He, we, uh, the he, well, he's into everything. He's into yeah. coffee. He's into oil. He's yeah. into everything. Yeah, Ross Webster is the bad guy, the main bad guy. His sister, Vera Webster, is the secondary bad guy. Lorelai Ambrosia is, uh, but she's like a sex object, I guess, for Ross Webster. Uh, I, I thought I liked it. I thought yeah. I liked this movie. I thought it was the better movie. When I was watching it, I started to realize right away that this is a film that may be a victim a little bit of trying to capitalize immediately on the success of Superman 2 of the previous film. And that's often a problem for sequels. They want to rush out and they want to, they want to grab that business again. And often sequels suffer for that. But the problems with this go much deeper than rushing to production. And it's all got to do with Lester and the Newman script. Everything about the problems in the film have everything to do with Lester, uh, Richard Lester, the director, and David and Leslie Newman. If you guys have followed us on this journey uh, up to this point, one of the things Jason and I have been struggling with a lot is how comedy should work in a movie. And this film, it's a, it's a perfect education in how not to do comedy in an action film. There's a sequence at the beginning in which there's one quote unquote funny gag after another. Metropolis has suddenly been invaded by the Keystone Cops. If you don't get that reference, let me rephrase that. Metropolis has been invaded by a bunch of 
physical comedy performers. They do pratfalls. They do pies in the face. And this is something that Jason has hit upon in previous discussions. Nobody in any of these scenes, Jason is listening very closely, like about to accept his praise. Nobody in the film, in this opening sequence, behaves like a normal human. There's a blind guy who loses his cane and he goes around and goes off on this wild, wacky adventure. It's not something that would happen. It's not something that would happen in the Superman universe that we've come to so far. This is a perfect sequence for uh, a Keystone Cops movie, a physical comedy movie. It's a perfect sequence for an airplane type movie, which is very heavy in physical comedy and, and, and bold comedy. I don't think any of the the set pieces in this in this scene are very funny myself, but but you could see them fitting in a Zuckerman project, which are the people who did the airplane movies and the Naked Gun movies. I think that Zucker, Zuckerman's, right? Zucker. 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 Sorry. Nobody behaves like a, a normal human. Clark is increasingly revealed throughout this movie and the next one has a really... Clark Kent slash Superman, I think is revealed as a really, uh, not a nice guy, not a, not a great, not, I think a lot of his, a lot of character could be revealed in this. Like he stops this really pretty woman from getting hit in the, in the face with a pie during this scene, because of course it's a pratfall scene. So there's like, ought to be some pie flying around and he catches the pie and smashes it into some poor schmuck who, you know, presumably didn't deserve to have a, a pie slammed in his face by a fist of steel. <laughs> <laughs> it would be Superman. But but the whole scene is just, it's too long. Like the last film in Superman 2, we had a overlong credit sequence. This pratfall sequence takes place in the credit sequence. It's too long. It's not funny. And nobody behaves in a way that's that feels real and certainly doesn't feel real within the Superman universe that we've had so far. Uh, would you add anything to that? You know, I would not add anything because I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, actually, that watching that credit sequence this time, which, by the way, um, when I was a kid, because I've seen Superman 3 quite a lot because we yeah. taped it off, off TV mm. in the 80s. And it, interestingly, they created an, a separate credit sequence in space, okay. like in the previous two films. And then the pratfall sequence was kind of unhampered by credits, so you could so you could see everything, right? My reaction to it was exactly what you stated. Uh, it's a terrible credit sequence. It, it, immediate, it, it immediately creates a problem in re-entering this world, the Donnerverse, which I've discovered people refer to this as. Yeah. There is one scene, though, that I would kind of cautiously praise. Okay. And that is, even though it's part of the gags, there's a bank heist, and there's a guy who, he runs over a fire hydrant, and his car begins filling with water, which looks kind of frightening, actually. Like, he's drowning very, very quick. And for some reason, people can't open the, the doors of the car. And so um, this is the job for Superman. He goes into a photo booth, which a young child, who, by the way, is the the boy who played young Kal-El in the first Superman movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, who, who puts money in the machine and gets photos of Clark making his change. Superman rips off a picture of just Superman, hands it to him, yep. and then flies up on top of the car. The Superman theme is playing. He rips open the moonroof of the car, pulls the guy out, and shakes his hand. Not a great moment, but it would have fit very well in the, the old George Reeves television show. That little moment is, in my mind, I, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of inconsequential. Yeah. But that, but, but that is a good moment, and it is the only moment in that entire sequence that actually feels like Superman. Yeah. Sidebar. Jason's use of the phrase, this is a job for Superman, got me thinking uh, about this iconic tagline. 
and it appears to have made its first appearance in the Emerald of the Incas, which was first broadcast on radio in 1940 in April. So it's an old catchphrase. And so into the sidebar. And now, back to the show! Being inconsequential is the perfect uh, theme for this film, so I have to say it was hard to move on past that scene. I The credit yeah. sequence really just drove a stake into my heart for all of the things that we've discussed. The film doesn't improve from there, really. I'm trying to think of if it has any highlights that it does and we'll get to them later uh, it has it has a one it has a, in the close it has a nice moment i think it has a couple of nice moments See, and i think i'll have other things to highlight then there are some nice things that are done that are either not followed up on well yeah. or they're not executed well yeah. for the reasons that you pointed out some of the things the film tries to do were good ideas that it fails to capitalize on yeah so i found an interview of christopher reed from 1983 when the film came out and his idea of the clark kent character which i i mentioned in the last that by this point he's he's undirectable he this role is his I, I don't think any director could tell him how to how to how to play these scenes. Yeah. But his idea was because uh, Lois Lane is dispensed with, she's going to Bermuda. Yeah. Which the Salkinds, the, the rumor is that they were angry at her for speaking out against the firing of Donner, so they they wanted to get rid of her. Yeah. So you know we get some reestablishment with the old gang at uh, at the Daily Planet, but Clark's going to do a story and he's going to go back to Smallville yep. to do a story about you know can can you go home again after becoming a metropolis sophisticate? Yeah. Um, yes, yes. And right, I, I like that. I it's like a good idea. Thing. Yeah. It's a good idea. And in Christopher Reeve's mind, this was a chance for Clark to go home and be himself again because he yep. doesn't have to be bumbling. He's going back to people who know him. Yeah, yeah. And who know him, a, a, a life that is gone, just like his life on Krypton, which he doesn't even remember. That life is gone as well. Yeah. But his, but his Smallville life is gone. I believe his mother is dead at this point. But I think Lana says that. Yeah, yeah. He's not had any reason to return home. And now he's returning home to the life that he actually did have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even, though, even though he's this alien... You know, he 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 was raised among uh, Kansans, as as you said. Yeah. And so I think that that's a really good idea. And I think that Christopher Reeve was well equipped to play those scenes. Yeah. But but and we can we can go into some of those scenes in detail if you want. Yeah. But I think what you said about Lester and about the script, they don't give him a chance to really do that because there's all this, there's all these every scene. And, and uh, a lot of the scenes with Lana Lang, who he's, he reestablished his contact with, a lot of those scenes are pretty good. They could have been better, but they have to keep injecting all of these little bits of humor and, and slapstick comedy that really prevents him and Annette O'Toole, who, who I, and I think she's good, actually. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And it prevents the two of them from really building on the chemistry which they have. Well, absolutely. I mean... That's a, I, I think that that's a great idea of Clark going back to Smallville to discuss, to, to kind of try and rediscover his roots, to do the high school reunion story. The idea of can you ever go home, like you said, is, is a great idea. But none of that stuff is given any room to breathe by Lester. Like you, again, just to, just to follow what you're saying. And that happens several times. 
It happens to the whole Gus Gorman. Like, Gus Gorman is this uh, down-on-his-luck guy in Metropolis trying to find a job. He seems to be gifted in the area of computers. Instead of actually doing something interesting with that, they make him kind of a bumbling guy who sort of understands computers, but they never let him be a, 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 an interesting character. They never let him be Richard Pryor, you know? So so there, there are two things that the director could have done with this. They could have said, Richard Pryor, you be Richard Pryor and you be funny. And we'll film that. Or Richard Pryor, you act as this guy who's discovering computers, who's going to use this knowledge of computers to get in good with this business. And Gus is a small time hustler. I think he's, you know, he's a guy who's not averse to going around the law a little bit. In his demonstration of his computer skills, we see him skimming money. He's, he embezzles money from his new boss, the Ross Webster guy, the guy who's going to be a bad guy, who, who will be our big bad. Um, and how, does he do, how does he do this? It's called salami slicing, <laughs> is, is the term for it in, in, in the trade. Folks, this movie is important, if for nothing else, that it gave us the movie Office Space. Because without this movie, they couldn't reference the scheme that Gus Gorman uh, perpetrates onto Ross Webster, which is to take the fractions of a cent in transactions and funnel those fractions of a cent into the embezzler's bank account. Gus Gorman skims off uh, quite a lot of money and he's supposed to be this really smart guy. And they also want to play him as an imbecile, you know, and kind of an idiot. So they can have like funny little uh, editing comedy beats. Ross Webster sees the guy as skimming money off of him. And he's like, oh, this guy might be a, a guy we can use. I mean, he's got to be brilliant. There's no way he'll draw attention to himself. He looks out the window and Gus, our uh, Richard Pryor character, comes hurtling into the parking lot in a Ferrari, I think. Yeah. With the top off, and he pulls, he, he doesn't even park very well, you know? I mean, that's that's the level of comedy that the Newmans and Lester think will be good enough for the audience. Again, we see them not letting a scene breathe or a character breathe and really come into their own space uh, or let real ideas kind of develop. Well, uh, I... Uh... I, I totally agree with that, and I would illustrate that with a, with another scene that I think perfectly captures how poorly written Richard Pryor's character is. And that's when he um, uh, he's down on his luck, he's lost his unemployment, but he sees an advertisement to become a computer programmer. Now, the best sign that this film is poorly written, the Newmans don't even know how to write a character and, and just kind of established that he's a genius yeah because he he's at the computer and the computer the teacher of the of the computer class there's a lady that says how would you program two bilateral coordinates at one time and he's like lady that can't be done it's impossible computers can do many things but they can't do that Yep. Then Gus does it. Yep. But then when he asks, good Lord, how did you do that? And this is the important part. Gus says, I don't know. Yeah. I just did it. Well, that's not genius. That's an accident. Yeah, yeah. That's when you're fiddling around with your computer and you accidentally do what you intended to do, but you don't know how you did it, so you couldn't do it again. He goes from that to, accident, to accidentally figuring out how to do something to, by the end of the film, being able to build a supercomputer. They, they don't navigate that well because the computer he has them design at the end of the movie is, I mean, it's it's stumbled out of a Bond film. It's stumbled out of a, a, a it's Hal's older brother. Right. You know, it's an incredible feat of engineering that the Newmans don't, don't establish how he did it. There were so many ways that they could have done Gus better that wouldn't have eaten up too much screen time. But again, they kept going for gags and humor. Yeah, well, I mean, just show that he has a natural aptitude that he yeah. didn't know that he had. Exactly. As opposed to, I don't know how the hell I did this, you know. It, I, 
I don't I don't like that no. because it's it's perfectly possible that somebody is has a natural aptitude of brilliance with something who just never had the opportunity. But that's not what that's not how he's written. He's no. written in such a way that he just kind of stumbles onto things. And that, and that comes up again later on too when he uh, Ross needs uh, our villain will later on in the film be upset that the country of Colombia isn't playing ball with him and he's going to send Gus on a mission to hack into a weather satellite. And this is kind of a neat idea in better hands, but instead of being an interesting espionage, you know, espionage scene, instead of being an interesting programming scene, I mean, you've, there are movies that have done this much more effectively. It becomes this scene of uh, Richard Pryor sneaking into a facility, not really sneaking in, he fakes his way in. He hustles his way into this relay station, this computer relay station, and in Smallville. Uh, in Smallville. Um, sure, why not? And and what ensues is this binge drinking between he and the security guard. And then Gus has to do this project that, that his boss wants, this, the, the villain wants done, which is to destroy all the coffee beans in Colombia with a weather satellite. And he has to do it all while drunk, which will give us another excuse for the humor of the Newmans, which is a, a, a more physical comedy. Oh as Richard Pryor is trying to hack into the weather satellite, somehow this computer in Smallville can hack into so many different systems. It, it attacks some ATM in Metropolis, that, and it keeps spitting out money at some guy, and the guy gets to be funny as money is coming at him. I don't know. What else happens in that scene? I was really offended. Oh, you had to put that on me, didn't you? Um, well, there's the, uh, there's the lady who her husband discovers that she has spent, what, like $7 million at at uh, uh, the department store and he just smashes the grapefruit in her face. And then there's the the god-awful attempt by the people of Metropolis to cross into the crosswalk. Oh, God. Yes, go ahead. Explain the scene because I don't want to say it. <laughs> and uh, the, the people, they get a walk signal and they go into the crosswalk. Then the signal changes back to don't walk. And for some reason, uh, the cars decide that even though there's all these people in the crosswalk, that they can go, which actually, I don't think that's really how it works. Oh, no. But, right. Okay. But this goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, with and the, then and with the cars going just, in and out of the, the cars and the people going in and out of the crosswalk. Right. Because they can't think for themselves. Right? No. Uh, which I, I guess the people wouldn't react normally in a situation like that. But then both the don't walk and the walk signal are both expressed at the same time. And the, the walk uh, signal decides to kick the ass of the don't walk signal and slips into his, uh, Front cell. part of the yeah, frame, yeah, yeah. yeah, his cell, and basically takes him over his knee and starts pounding the shit out of him. Yeah. So the walk signal and the don't walk signal are in the shape of humans. Human. You've seen them. Yeah. Uh, they're not like they're not text. They're a green guy or a red guy. No. I audibly groaned when that happened as I was watching the film. I mean, that's a scene that could never be in a, in the Donnerverse. It would work in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know. <laughs> Right. It would work in an airplane movie. You yeah. Know, you could do that in an airplane movie, which is just about absurd comedy. I mean, if you're being absurdist, that's okay, but that doesn't work in, in, in uh, the Superman 
universe, at least not from the previous two films. There, there's, there's probably a version of Superman you could have done, maybe something absurdist that might have worked. But the villain that Jason alluded to earlier, Mr. Mitzelplick, he could have caused some kind of chaos like that that would have caused people to not behave well. And you could have gags like that, but you can't just insert cell animation in a film for laughs because you're not, it, it, I think it disrespects the audience and nobody's going to laugh. I mean, maybe there were a couple of kids in 1983 that thought that was the best thing, but I, I can't imagine there would have been many. I don't think so either. I, it, it, it's out of place. And actually, I had never given that much thought. But when you just said that if Mr. Mitzaplik had been something like that, well, that would have been appropriate because, yeah. it, because it would have been part of the, the theme of that villain, just the kind of aesthetic of that villain, the kind of thing that villain would do. Yeah, because he's, mag- he's a more magical based character. He's an absurd. He's an absurd character. He likes to do absurd right, things. Right. He he's not really an evil character so much as he's just he's just an agent of chaos and likes to bother Clark Kent. At least in most of the versions I've seen, maybe there's a really evil version of him somewhere. But he's just been a thorn in the side, but not really dangerous so much. So Richard Pryor doesn't get to breathe. Do the main villains get to breathe very much? I I, I wanted to put that out to you. Uh <sighs> No. And actually, um, the version I taped off TV years ago, a lot of the interactions between Ross the boss, which is what Gus calls uh, Mr. Ross, a lot of those scenes are a little bit longer. There's more, there's more comedy lines. So actually, even some of the some of the comedy lines are actually cut out or were cut out for the film. But, but it's not good comedy. You see, no. that's where you know, we might have disagreed a little bit, at least in Superman 2. But in this case, most of, most of the comedy in this film is, is really out of place and and the, the the montage that we just were talking about that's the best example there's no reason why the movie just has to kind of grind to a halt for these laughs well when, when the movie's telling several stories i want to back up a little bit while gus is doing his programming how long was he at that computer desk i have to ask because a lot of the scenes seem to take place in the middle of the night in the united states and in the daytime and you know and of course they're taking place at some time period i think mostly during the day in colombia and there's also this weird stupid story about these this couple from metropolis who are in colombia because i guess we can't possibly relate to any of the people who will be traumatized by the storm that Gus is about to create unless there are a couple of fat Americans vacationing there. So they go, they, they win this raffle from the Daily Planet to go to Columbia. It's a storyline that doesn't need to be in there. Nothing that they do is funny, though I think Richard Lester and, and of course the writers of the film must have thought it was funny. And their their trip is ruined. They get a bunch of rain. They, ha- they, they have to deal with rain, I guess. And so when they come back, the guy's got a neck brace on and he's going to sue the Daily Planet. And it's all an excuse to give Perry White some funny things to do. The film earlier during the raffle scene, Perry White, oh, this is so tedious. Perry White has to draw the numbers out of a, a lottery numbers out of a, the lottery spinner. I don't know what that thing is called, but I don't know how many times Perry White has had to do this. One thinks it's more than once, but he'll pull a number out in this scene and he'll go back and sit down and try and have a talk with Clark. And then the lady's like, well, Mr. White, you've got to do another number. And so he gets up and he, he picks another number and then sits down again. So every time he picks out a number, she has to run to the door and yell the number out to somebody who's writing it down out in the office. And then she comes back and Perry White's sitting down and she's like, well, Mr. White, we've got five more numbers to do. And somebody thought this was funny. Now, if it was convoluted for you to listen to me say that, 
it was, it was equally convoluted to watch it. It's not a funny scene. And a lot of the comedy, I think, just like drags the film to a screeching halt. The comedy is misplaced to begin with, but it, it, it hurts the film enormously that it's it's hardly ever funny. I, I agree. And it actually, it, it, it smothers the some of the good ideas of the movie, which I think, I mean, now I'd like to kind of uh, talk about some of the things that I did like about yeah. the small the Smallville sequence. I enjoyed the the chemical fire because you've got Clark and Jimmy. And I liked that because it was a different dynamic. Yeah, Clark yeah. And Jim, right? Like that's something that maybe you would have an issue. Yeah, maybe, yeah. An, maybe an inconsequential issue where Clark and Jimmy go and do something. Superman has to kind of deal with this chemical fire. Jimmy's going to go do something on his own. It doesn't work. He takes a risk. He breaks his leg. Clark's got to become Superman. Uh, and it's a disaster. It's not a villain. Yeah, yeah. So so this is also kind of a, a larger scale kind of uh, George Reeves kind of. George Reeves, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, that Jason just mentioned George Reeves, uh, no relation to Christopher Reeves, I don't think. He is the actor who played Superman on in the 50s on the television yeah. show. Some of you guys might not know that. It's important that you do so. Sidebar. George Reeves and Christopher Reeve are not related. And in fact, for years, I've added an S to the end of Christopher Reeve. Uh, and that just isn't correct. So George Reeves, Christopher Reeves. Now you know how to distinguish between the two. So into the sidebar. Yeah, now you know. I, I actually think that that's a fairly good scene. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, 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 a central action scene. So as no, a no. minor... As a minor action scene, I think it's very good. It's nice to see Sergeant Apone doing something else besides being destroyed by aliens. And now for another sidebar. Jason and I have seen a lot of movies, and we often speak in shorthand. The Sergeant Apone that he was referring to is a character from the movie Aliens, played by Alexander Al Basil Matthews. So ended the sidebar. That's right, that's right. Um, it was him, it was him. Okay. Yeah. My God, Superman, they're trapped. I, I, I liked all of that. Yep. Uh, then we cut to um, the Smallville High School Clark's now on his own, and he reconnects with Lana Lang. Now, I think there's a lot of dumb comedy. Yep, yep. There's a lot of dumb comedy, even in their conversations with each other, where where she says, uh, oh, there's a gallon of, man of potato salad left over. And then he says, well, and she had just been talking about the end of her marriage. And, and uh, he says, uh, and she says, you know what the problem is? And he says, too much mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, too much mayonnaise. Donald loved mayonnaise. Why do you think that was the problem? And it's just a, a little exchange like that. Where actually, there was a pretty interesting exchange taking place. Yeah. Because L Lana was the queen of the prom and, and she never left Smallville. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, her, her, the horizons of her life contracted very, very quickly and unexpectedly. She didn't expect that. You kind of get that sense. Yeah. And and Clark, who she liked, but never felt like that she could pay much attention to because of because he wasn't popular. And he went to Metropolis, and now he's a successful reporter. And now she kind of looks up to him. I think Annette O'Toole and Christopher Reeve play those scenes well. I think the script does not serve them well. No. And I and I think that they're working with a director that's not really interested in, in this dynamic. I actually was interested yep. in the dynamic. No. And it's it's not it, it's ruined. It is. It is. But you're right. I I mean they do the best they can in those scenes. They're not when set against other films great, but they are good they're they're good scenes for this film relative to the rest of this the, yeah. the film that we'll see. And that's I mean I think it is an interesting idea. And like it would have been an interesting story for Clark to kind of come back and see how staying in a place affected, you know, the peers that 
never really accept some of them didn't really accept him there is uh the old bully the old high school bully brad he is a stalker of some kind and that's played yeah. for laughs which is pretty appropriate to the time period not appropriate in in the, in, in a moral sense but that's the kind of thing that would have passed for humor in, in the early 80s. But, I mean, that's something you would visit if you went back home. I mean, I, I don't mind a lot of the uh, moments in Smallville. I just don't think they're executed particularly well. Uh, I, I, I like, and I, I agree they're not executed well, but I, but I do like them. Yeah. I do like, uh, I, I like what they tried to do. <sighs> Another moment, like, they go and they... They're, they're going to have the picnic. Now, the, the if, people who are going to have the picnic are Lana and Clark and, and Clark her son. And, and her son, Ricky. Now, see, that's another good example of a scene yep. where, where the, they're about to have the picnic. And this is a moment for Clark and Lana to, to kind of reconnect. And there's more slight little gags or, or you know, misunderstandings, you know, this yep. kind of, that, that really kind of ruined the scene because actually, I, well, quite frankly, I had never noticed. I've seen this movie many, 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 many times. And I had never really noticed that Christopher Reeve was trying not to play Clark as Bumble. He was just trying to be Clark. Yeah. And I think that, that I missed that all these years because when Richard Lester saw these scenes, he just saw an opportunity to entertain with humor. Whereas a, a better director and Christopher Reeve would have said, no, this is actually a pretty central moment in Clark's life. This is coming home to the place where he was never accepted. And now and now here he is. He He's, uh, he's with the girl that he liked, that he had a crush on. Yeah. And he's finally able to, I don't think he, you know, I don't think he has a plan for what he's going to do, because one of the things the film does not address is the fact that Clark already knows that he can't have a relationship with anybody that was established in the last film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where he intends to go with this, but the film, that's not a question that, that this film would ever even bother to address, because this film's not really interested in characters. It's interested in just cheap entertainment. It's just interested in cheap entertainment. I think that that's, that could have been the tagline for the for the poster of the movie but yeah i mean they, they take us away from that interesting scene because uh ricky is it yeah ricky runs off after the lang dog and somehow he ends up taking a pretty nasty fall we don't see that happen but he's in a wheat field the dog's barking uh timmy is the dog's name timmy i i, I want to say buster buster oh. Anyway, I was totally wrong. I'll, I'll cut out my errors, obviously, in the edit. Timmy's fallen and he's hit his head on the one rock in this wheat field. There's not just one combine headed toward him. There's like, there's like a, a, a chain gang of combines that are harvesting the wheat and Buster's barking and Clark hears and he has to go save Ricky. And that's not a bad scene as, 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 as Superman rescues go. It's really poorly acted by everybody except Christopher Reeves, uh, the kid driving the combine. Gosh, is he all right? I mean, also the way it's shot, there's a big depression of wheat. So you would have seen the kid, the way the scene is set up. From the cockpit of the combine, the driver, it's strange that it would be a, like a kid who looks like he's under 16 driving. But it may be farm. That might be like pretty farm, farmy. That might be farm accurate. Listeners, if any of you are farmers, feel free to write us an email and let us know if you would have your 15-year-old out on a 80 or $90,000 piece of farm equipment. Sidebar. What I meant to say was 330000 to $500,000 piece of equipment. And so endeth the sidebar. Harvesting your life. He should be able to see the kid, but anyways, he doesn't. Superman stops the combine and takes uh, Ricky back to Lana. And I mean, I guess that that's an okay scene, but it, it's there's nothing, nothing that gets done in that scene showing Superman save the kid is new. 
to the viewer. And I think it takes us away from that interesting dynamic, the potential dynamic. Any other Smallville scenes that you thought were? Well, actually, I... Um, the bowling I wanna... scene was pretty good. Well, which Actually, that might be the only gag in the movie I actually like. <laughs> I think it is. It is. So Lana Lang's son has a birthday party, right? Not many kids show up to it. Is that right? I can't remember. Well, no, it looks like that there's, there's a lot of kids. They just don't want to pick Ricky for their team. Oh, right, right, right. Of course, Brad is at the bowling alley. And Clark is just letting Ricky... Do bowl his way, right? Trying to get the ball down there, not really being a demanding parent type figure. Brad comes over and is like, let me show you how it's done, little Ricky. And Lana is upset because she doesn't like Brad. And Clark intervenes and he's like, oh, well, now, now Brad, I think I think Ricky's doing fine on his own. And then insults are traded and Timmy, uh, sorry, Ricky rolls the ball down the alley and Clark gives it a little nudge with the super breath. Why it didn't blow Ricky down the alley too, I don't know. But, but Let's just assume that Clark is very precise with his breathing and it hits the ball and it sends it into the bowling pins and they all explode like a grenade went off. And it's a, it, it is kind of a good scene. It, it's, it's done well. It's funny. And, and actually, that's probably the best moment in the film where Christopher Reeve really gets to kind of nail what he's going for because, yeah. because he stands up to Brad in a very kind of uh, confident way. Yeah. He's almost talking down to Brad, like, yeah. you know, I just don't think he needs a bowling lesson from the other kids. And and, and Brad, uh, you know, for a guy who's lucky to be water, water boy, you know, you're, uh, you got a big mouth, Kent. Uh, he needs a man to show him how to do it. And Clark says, uh, I think he's, as you said, I think he's doing just fine on his own. Excuse me. And then he just kind of moves past Brad. And it's kind of, it's kind of a moment where Clark is clearly in charge in that scene he's still being polite but but he's he's um he's not backing down to brad and and brad kind of disappears into the background so clark actually even before the the uh the super sneeze uh, brad kind of allows clark to kind of decide what's going to happen yeah and that's that is actually kind of a neat moment that's the kind of scene that Reeve, that what it's what Christopher Reeve wanted to do. I think that scene works. But there is an interesting thing about Brad and Lana that I, I do kind of like about the return to the small town. I'm sure you felt this way when you go back to Richmond. You see people kind of stuck with that local history. And yeah. the film doesn't explore this very well at all. But take Brad, for instance. I mean, when we first see him at the reunion, he's talking about his high school football game. Look, guy, nobody gives a shit about the high school football game anymore. But that, but but that was the high point of his life. That was the high point of his life. And for, for anybody who's gone away and come home, sometimes you do run into the the people who never left. I think there is sometimes an interesting way where not leaving, of course, can can be comforting. A lot of people stay in their hometown their whole life and they have a great time. There is a way, at least when I look outside looking in, that I certainly see some of that historical past really kind of limiting the, uh, the vision that sometimes people have of what possibilities are, I guess, you know, right. staying in a hometown. And that might just be me being an elitist. I think that the film comes perilously close to exploring that kind of terrain before yeah. before pulling back into physical comedy. And, that's, and that happens all over the place in the film. It happens with the bad guys who are almost, almost interesting at times. There's a scene where Superman has foiled the Columbia gambit. So Ross has sent Gus on this mission and, and he thinks it's went off without a hitch. And the newscasters, the, the news reports are talking about this freak storm that happened in Columbia. And Ross is like, that's great. And says, turn it off, turn the, turn the coverage off. And he goes back out onto his porch. On the, the roof of his building, there's a ski slope. On the roof of the Ross Webster building, there is a 
giant personal ski slope, and that's where Ross is about to go to celebrate destroying every coffee bean in Colombia. He's going to go ski on his roof in the middle of Metropolis. Gus comes barreling in. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. And he explains what happened, and we get little snippets of what Superman did to stop the, the tornado hurricane thing that Gus set into motion. And now, in light of the fact that their plan has been foiled, they have to come up with a way to stop Superman, right? Right, yeah, that's what I was about to get to. And so Gus is kind of explaining some of the stuff that he knows about Superman. He knows, he knows about kryptonite. Oh no, actually, Lorelai Ambrosia is the one that knows about the kryptonite. Well, because that's, that's a gag, because the whole, ga- the whole gag of her character he says she's the super genius. So after Gus and Lorelai explained to Ross Webster and his sister some of Superman's weaknesses. They hatch a new plan yeah. to, you know, today, coffee. Tomorrow, the oil. Uh, so he wants to corner the oil market. And so the plan is to have Gus, I believe, use the Vulcan satellite again yeah. to uh, order all of the, the pumps in the world to stop pumping. And for all of the oil tankers in the world to be ordered to the middle of the Atlantic where they are to shut off their engines and just sit there. And apparently, there's nothing anybody can do to get them information to to come home anyway, right? So he does this, but of course, they also have to get create a plan to get Superman out of the way. Yep. And that's where we talked about that it was Lorelai that knew about the kryptonite. And, and, and interestingly, Ross does refer to that story in the Daily Planet. So he, yeah. he references Lois's story. Sidebar, that story to which Jason just alluded is a key component of Superman 1 in which uh, Superman grants an interview to Lois Lane and reveals far too much about himself. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, they they do not use Richard Pryor in any uh, effective fashion. Not even not even with comedy. Especially not there. It's, yeah, yeah. So so um, so they also decide that he's going to use the Vulcan satellite to find where Krypton used to be and to latch onto a piece of floating debris and have the computer analyze it. And there's a small percentage of the kryptonite, less than one percent, that is unknown. And so Gus takes a guess. He takes a shortcut and puts in tar because he's he's smoking cigarettes and it's says tar is hazardous to your health people's tar in there. Uh, they create the compound for him, uh, and it looks like kryptonite. Yeah. Then we're back to Smallville. There is a, a, another moment that was kind of odd to me to, to kind of set up the planting the kryptonite on Superman. Lana Lang calls Clark and is horrified because Ricky told all the kids at school that he knows Superman and Superman's coming his birthday party. And Lana, for some reason, thinks Clark can solve this problem. And well, I mean, everybody in Metropolis knows everybody else, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And Clark decides that he he tells Lana that he and Superman are close, which I don't think that that was ever established in the previous films. Um, but that, okay, but there's also something interesting about that. Clark has already um, blurred some boundaries with Lana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's doing so again. And, I, and so when I watched that scene this time, I thought, well, you know, actually, that's kind of interesting because these films have subtly kind of established that Clark's problem is is kind of this uh, pride. He has a conversation about it with his father in the first film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his father talks about the danger of pride, and of course, uh, th- there are scenes all the way back to Superman Two when he takes out the bully at the end of the film, where yeah. Clark cannot walk away from situations, and he kind of takes a liking to Ricky, and he he really doesn't want Ricky to suffer the way the way he, the way he did. Yeah, that's what that's why he saves him. You know, he kind of sa- helps him save face in the bowling alley by you know doing what he does, and then he decides to show up anyway. 
away for Ricky's birthday. It's kind of a, to me, it's kind of a blurred boundary. Well, I found that kind of interesting. I mean, but this, but this film's not interested in making that interesting. No, no. And so like, yeah, it's another wasted bit of wasted potential. Uh, but I noticed that Clark seems to do a lot of that line blurring especially in three and, and four, which we'll see a lot of it in four. Yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly could have made him more human. We could have seen a little bit more of that basic human weakness in him. The unexplored, it, it doesn't work. And it makes me like cringe a little bit because I'm like, ooh, Clark, Superman can't have these moments, I don't think. You know what I mean? He's got to be a little right. more impartial. But, but anyway, he goes and, and, and he, comes to, he comes to Ricky's birthday party and word has gotten out in Smallville. Yeah, and so, and so they have this big uh, uh, brass bands and ticker tape parade and all this kind of thing, or what will pass as a ticker tape parade in Smallville. Yep. And uh, then um, Gus shows up dressed as General Patton. Yes, yes. And gives a, uh, a long speech about Superman saving the world from a, a disaster with American plastic and he lays the kryptonite on him and Superman is a little mystified by it but just says thank you it, it doesn't it doesn't kill him at all however it does begin to change his uh, it begins to affect his, his brain yep. and it begins to affect his personality now this is another part of the film for the most part I like I like this stuff I like the Superman suddenly becoming really nasty and in a better film, this could have been this could have been tied to the weaknesses that you were just talking about, that I was just talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that the films have subtly brought up that yeah. it, that there is kind of a hubris that Clark has, and you could almost say that this kryptonite is just bringing all of that to the surface. The personality that kind of begins to come out is this guy who really doesn't care about anybody and is ready to get the ball and score a touchdown every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. remember the conversation with Absolutely. his father. Absolutely. Now he's just going to do what he wants to do and to hell with everything else. And, and I and I kind of do love that first moment when Lana comes out of the kitchen and she says, uh, there's a truck that that, that, that uh, went over the bridge and, and it's hanging over the side and the driver's still in the cab. I, I, I hate to make you rush off. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, there's no rush. There's no, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, Superman says there's no rush. <laughs> and uh, I like the idea of it. I, I don't like the execution of anything in this movie, really. I mean, it is an interesting idea that this kryptonite would bring out a, dark, a darker side, the darker elements of his personality. It's let in, though, with that, that awful Richard Pryor doing his patent. I don't understand why that happened. I mean, Richard Pryor is a great and gifted com- comedic writer. Yeah. Why not say, Richard, why don't you come up with a way to lay this uh, kryptonite on Superman that, is, that works for you? Because what Pryor's trying to do is something he doesn't look comfortable doing. It looks like he's trying to be funny, but not really knowing how to be funny in this character. What they gave Pryor to do wasn't, wasn't very useful in creating laughs. Or they could have just played it straight. He could have come in and, and given him, you know, said, "Hey, we want to. We also heard you were in town. We want to. This, this, this is our the Pentagon's way of saying thanks for all the all the help." I would have preferred that because, oh, yeah, it, it's actually a very good plot thread. Yeah, yeah. and the plot thread, as as you're pointing out, the plot thread begins with this ridiculous scene in which, and Christopher Reeve looks uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, doesn't he? He uh, does. So I think now would be a good time to bring up something about Richard Lester that actually is very similar to what we discussed about Joel Schumacher. So he's actually a very, he was a very experienced director of comedy. He was quite right when he originally turned down the salt kinds and said he, he knew nothing about Superman. He had no interest in Superman. I would compare Richard Lester's directorial style in these two films to Joel Schumacher. Yeah. yeah. He's directing a cartoon. He doesn't take any of this material seriously. And as 
a result, none of it is executed well enough to really work. Now, we might disagree, and I think there's more than a few good, even great ideas in this movie. Oh, I think there, oh, I, no, I think, I think we'll, we agree that there are a lot of good ideas in this film. I can't bring myself to say I liked anything in it. That's all I'm saying. I think the, this film and the next film are actually chock-a-block full of good ideas. I like most of the ideas that they, they present on screen, I think, but it's just a matter of execution. I mean, I like Gus, I like Lorelai, I like Ross, I like, I like the idea of all these characters, and I think they had the acting talent to pull off a better script, but I think it goes back to what you're saying, is that Lester wants to blow by a lot of interesting stuff because he doesn't think that that there that people will find that stuff interesting. So he's trying to distract with comedy, I think. He doesn't find the ideas interesting. Richard Lester had no respect for the ideas in the script he was given. Now, the script itself was pretty campy, but there were some, some ideas in it. I, d- I just don't think that he took anything in the film seriously. Well, I, I mean, I have to think that that's true because I think there are times when you look I, I think you have to to look at a scene in while you're shooting it the the Richard Pryor doing his patent thing would have been a moment where where a, a, a better director more invested in the content of the film would have said this isn't working it's not yeah. funny I'm watching the dailies I'm not laughing Pryor looks uncomfortable I would want as a director I would want to make sure that my actors and actresses came off looking good and so I would be like, well this isn't working let's just play it straight you just be a general, or if you've got a better idea, come up with something. We'll, we'll try this again tomorrow because it didn't work. Lester never wants to do that. Yeah. Lester has a terrible sense of humor, and he actually thought that that scene was great. Well, he wanted to work with Richard Pryor. Yeah. I mean, that was something that I'm he sure. wanted to do. It wasn't It wasn't his idea. It was actually, it was Ilya Salkine who saw Richard Pryor on The Tonight Show. And Richard Pryor had said to Johnny Carson that he had just seen Superman 2. Maybe, yeah. And, and that he loved it. He loved yeah. it. it was great. For some reason, Ilya Salkine kind of connected the dots. Oh, that must mean that he should be in the next film. I'm not sure why those dots were connected. It's an odd choice. Even if they had used him differently or better, yeah. using Richard Pryor is not something that I would have come up with. No, no. Uh, nothing in his uh, CV would have said, yeah, family film guy. Let's do that. I mean, right. I think I think maybe the toy had come out, but even still, that was a pretty serious, that was comedic drama in many ways, I think the toy was. So, I have a theory about that. Okay, of the toy? I, if, I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken, the toy was 82. I'm not mistaken. It came out in 82. D- directed by? Richard Donner? Yes. Okay. I almost wonder that's why they picked Pryor because they, in the back of the Salkinds, in their supervillain mind, they could not leave well enough alone, and they had to prove to Donner that they could do anything better than him. They seem a little, they seem a little petty that way. The the Don, uh, the the, the Salkinds. Um, every time, every film has a story like that, you know. Yeah. There's, there's two more scenes really that we need to talk about. The end scene, the battle with the computer, and the Clark versus Superman. Clark is becomes increasingly bad throughout the film. They use him to keep the oil ships. One ship has the, one ship's captain is like, well, I'm not gonna go just because that silly computer told me to do it. Right. And so somehow uh, Ross Webster convinces Superman to go teach that ship a lesson and he punches a hole in it. Because, because one oil freighter getting to port will just destroy his plan. You know, I guess there, I guess there's enough oil on that freighter to to feed the world for the next ten years. And <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah, there are some other there are some there's some more comedy beats in this oil embargo scene that Ross is imposing on the world with the Vulcan satellite. Anyway, so uh, Superman is becoming increasingly bad. His suit's getting darker. He's got five o'clock shadow. 
there's one funny bit where he blows out the Olympic torch. And I kind of like Christopher Reeves' reaction to his bad action there. That I mean, Reeves does a good job. You can't deny that he yeah. does a good job of being a bad Superman, an evil Superman. This culminates in a uh, a crisis of, of 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 being. Well, well, stop a second because you're forgetting what prompted this crisis. He's in a bar. I, I do like this. He's he's destroying uh, liquor bottles by flicking peanuts into them. That is pretty neat. That is pretty yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Ricky's outside and Ricky calls out to him. He can hear me. He has super hearing. You're just in a slump. Which, <laughs> And that is what causes the crisis that causes Superman and Clark Kent to separate into two yeah. beings. Now, it, it only just now occurred to me because of what we've been talking about, yep. that the the Ricky talking him down from the ledge basically fits because the whole film up to this point, Clark has protected Ricky from humiliation, yeah, yeah. from from bullies, and now suddenly here's this kid who he really likes, who's the the the, the son of his uh, friend from high school, and this boy sees him as a bully, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that right. Now, see, all the times that all the times I've seen this movie, though, I, that never occurred to me. Why? Because this film does not pursue anything, any any character development with any kind of uh, of of care to make the viewer understand just what the hell's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why? You know, why does this happen? You didn't even remember just now. No, I did like, not. I did not. Yeah. I remember the scene where he's flipping peanuts at the bottles and shattering them. And he kind of melts the mirror a bit, which is a good effect with his heat yeah. vision. Uh, so, so yeah, but that, that, so that's the that's the 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 push yeah. that, that that causes his crisis of uh, am I a good guy or am I a bad guy? And he goes to the junkyard and splits into two people: one dressed as mild-mannered Clark, and the other as dark Superman. I always wondered if this didn't just take place in his mind. If it was, if somebody were to like pass the pass the junkyard would it be like that scene in fight club where we reveal that edward norton's just beating the shit out of himself i like that idea a little bit more than the the actual split but for some reason he has a fight with himself about himself it's kind of a banner versus the hulk kind of thing exactly exactly yeah uh this is a uh, clark versus his id i guess to use uh, yeah. a freudian terms i've probably just lost like a lot of listeners just now <laughs> by, by going to freud there but I, I couldn't think of anything else this is a neat idea i i don't think that the sequence is particularly well done this is this is something that that films used to love to do for some reason which is like the twinning of an actor and so you'd have like an actor playing a different character and then they'd be in the same scene and together and if they did that well for some reason a lot of directors and filmmakers thought oh we're doing something amazing here because it, it happened a lot and there's a scene that where superman is about to beat up clark and you can very clearly see that somebody has just put like a still photograph over the body double for clark as christopher reeves in the dark superman costume is getting ready to hit it but he but they they hold very still so they could do that 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 superimposing of the of the of the clark kent face on the double but it looks bad. It looks terrible. I don't think that the action sequence works very well, but I do like the idea of him having a fight with himself to, to free his, himself from his more evil inclinations. I, I think I like that scene better than you. I think that um, I would compare it to the Metropolis fight in Superman 2 in that at the time it looked really good. I, I think that it, it definitely does not look as good now as it did. When I was younger, I thought it was a great scene. I'm sure I'm sure in 83 I thought it was pretty amazing. I remember leaving yeah. the theater and my dad saying that was a pretty neat scene. That was the only positive thing he said. He didn't say anything else about the movie, but that he said that was a neat scene. 
or Superman had to fight himself. Yeah, and, and actually, I think, uh, and I think as we've gone along, I've mentioned the scenes that, that I like. Looking back, those are the scenes that kind of buoyed the movie for me yeah. at the time. And, and, and even now, even though probably I disliked it more now than I, I think I probably ever have. Yeah, um, but that's that, that's because I really noticed that these scenes that I think are are pretty good are are just really not established very well, and they're and they're not um, they're not, again we have a director that doesn't take any of this seriously, and so that in the end we don't even really know why it's happening. Well, I think I wonder. It, it could be that I'm I'm so uh, upset with the film that I'm not seeing how good it is. But I think some of what we've talked about is you're filling in a lot of the subtext of the scenes. And you're re- you are fleshing out the ideas of the scenes much more than Lester or this script manages to do. So I can see when you talk about the ideas, I'm right there with you. It's when you get to the point where you say, "I really like that scene," that I, I can't I can't go over that edge with you. Um, but yeah. I, I I do see what you're saying, and to the extent that they can do good things in this movie, Christopher Reeves and Annette O'Toole and the actors do the. I think the best work they they can do. I don't, for instance, I don't think Robert Vaughn. It's it, I don't think that it's his fault that his character is not very interesting. You know, I, well, see, actually, I agree with that. It's actually, I mean, um, I or, don't v- or Vera, the the actress who plays his sister Annie Ross. I even oh. like some of the uh, the idea of the the working class Richard Pryor kind of subtly insulting Vera Ross, that's the sister of the big bad, not even intending to because he keeps thinking that she's a man, you know? And he's like, well, you know, in the men, like, well, it's like when you see it in the men's room, right? You know, he's talking about something that you see in the men's room. And Vera's reactions to those little slights which aren't intentional necessarily on the part of Gus, are, are, are pretty good for, for this film. But I don't think the lackluster or the, un- I, not the, the underwhelmingness of the performances I don't think it's any of their faults. Robert Vaughn is a pretty decent actor in a lot of things. Well, and actually, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, he's not really given much to work on here. But here's here's where I'll hit you with this and see what you say. Okay, okay. The actors in this film have to deal with a similar problem that Joel Schumacher's actors have to do, deal with in the, those two Batman movies. Yeah, yeah. I think these actors are better. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's right. I mean, uh, and, all, and all of them. Vaughn, uh, I mean... I would not go as far to say that their performances work, but I but I don't think they embarrass themselves like some of the uh, people in the Schumacher Batman film. No, no, I don't think they do embarrass themselves. As a fan of these films, I'll say something that you're going to. I hope you're sitting. You are sitting down. I can see. I hate this movie more than Superman Four. I could sense you were heading in that direction for years, audience. I thought Superman Four was the worst movie ever made, and. It is. But as I was watching it today, I think it does traverse the boundary from bad to so bad it's quite enjoyable to watch. This film doesn't make, this film never turns that corner for me. It's just upsetting for for, for me. Well, maybe uh, what I hear and what you're saying, it would be comparing it to Spider-Man 3 and X-Men 3 because they're they're third films that dropped the ball. And it was a ball that you didn't want to see drop. Because, no, no. Because you were enjoying what was happening so much. I could see that. Yeah. And and actually, in retrospect and watching it this time, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. 
Yeah. Because because I do think that even the stuff in it that I like it, it is really stuff that is not it's not done right. It's not yeah. done as well. It's not done as well as it could have been. And so Superman three to me is a missed opportunity. I, I'm I'm kind of I'm glad they didn't do Ilya Salkine's idea. I mean, we can kind of rush through the computer scene as far as I'm concerned because yeah. actually I, I think you implied that you actually kind of liked. Didn't well, there's, there's some interesting ideas. I kind of like the the design of the MX missile that they try and hit yeah. our, the Superman with. I mean, we've seen this done better, obviously, in other films where where the computer became self-aware at... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At 12.45. So the computer becomes self-aware. This is a... I mean, this Gus is brilliant. His design... I mean, except for the one weakness that the thing had that he was able to capitalize on. So they, they build this supercomputer and Superman has to stop them, uh, the bad guys. They're, they say, come get us way out here in the desert. And Superman does, tries to do that to get them, to get the villains. And the computer fights him. Well, it's, uh, at first it's mainly missiles until he gets there. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the, the computer has all these Pac-Man, Atari Pac-Man noises. I don't know if you recognize that. I didn't that. notice that. I, mean, yeah. I, I recognized it at the time. because I, well, I think Atari I think Atari actually did some of the effects of the video game oh. that they did. Um, oh, oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I think I, I think do. Because there's a scene where, where Ross has to, he's manipulating the missiles with a joystick, and there's a screen of Superman, uh, a computerized... Uh, schematic of Superman flying across the screen and, and he's getting and he's getting points apparently apparently yeah yeah I mean Gus is a thoughtful programmer <laughs> Atari had to tone down the graphics of this thing that they had designed because it actually looked really good they wanted something that looked a lot more like a video game so he's manipulating the video games uh, this video game controller for the defenses Superman gets hit by one of the missiles but it doesn't hurt him because he's Superman and uh, he gets into the cave where this giant supercomputer has been built. I guess if you're a villain, you need a cave layer, a tech yeah. cave. It's sort of a Bondian layer, I think. Well, well, now that you've mentioned that, I do have to say that the production designer for this film was Peter Merton, who uh, worked under Ken Adam in the James Bond movies. And in fact, he he was the production designer for, I think, The Man with the Golden Gun. And there are a lot of really good sets. When they're in Ross's uh, apartment, Yep, yep. And the and the table flips over and you've got the big screen and then the Yeah, that the, could have come that spilled right out of uh, Goldfinger, I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so well, I, mean, I like the production shot, design. This was all shot a lot of those sets were all shot at Pinewood Studios. I know that. I know one, two, and yeah. three was all at Pinewood. Pinewood, for those of you who don't know, is kind of a very storied production movie production lot in London, I think, or England somewhere it's in, in England. England. Yeah. yeah. So you you'll see a lot of those similar design elements. Uh, like some of the space stuff that happens in these movies reminds me a lot of stuff we saw in Star Wars, stuff we saw in a lot of the effects remind me of the James Bond movie Moonraker. So the computer... Well, first it tries to suffocate him. Okay, okay. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And he, and he breaks out of that. Then the kryptonite. This time we got it right. And even as a kid, I wondered, well, how did they do that? Yeah, yeah. And if they were able to do it without Gus, why did they need Gus in the first place? Uh, yeah. Right. Um, but, th but then it all becomes really real for Gus. Putting billions of lives in danger in South America didn't make it real for him. But seeing it up close, well, I, I don't want to be the guy who kills Superman. Suddenly confronted with that. I mean, that could have been something interesting that they did. Where Gus... It could have been. It could have. It's not. It's not interesting. But Gus goes to the one weakness that he knows about in the com in in this giant supercomputer. It's just it's just a little computer chip that he pulls out. Everything shuts down. That's okay. But then the computer somehow 
starts back up and it's alive at that point. That could have been the birth of Brainiac. That could have been a bunch of different things. Gus over-designed it and it is now alive and it's attacking everybody. Lorelai understands immediately what's going on. She says, it's the positronic this or that. I don't know what she says exactly. And then she leaves and there's a there's a there's an almost funny com- comedic bit uh, beat where uh, Ross's sister is like, "What did you say?" And then, but they don't even explore that. Like, oh, she's yeah. brilliant, actually. She's just been after you for your money, or you know, the, you know something. Right, they yeah. could, could have addressed something there. Well, Dis- and then she well, well, and then she goes back to being the ditzy character. Yeah, yeah. In this in this situation, she would drop all of that. I would and be think, her and be herself. That would have been neat. But Superman runs and gets uh, that acid that we saw way back in the beginning of the film. That if it gets above, I don't know, some some temperature, it goes from green to red, and that's it. And he comes back to the computer with that the acid behind his back, and it sucks him into the computer. And I like the idea of fighting the computer. I thought that was all okay uh, as yeah. an idea, not well executed, but the acid eats the computer, Superman saves the day. Is there anything else that we need to say about? There isn't. The, 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 only, the only remaining thing that I'd want to mention, one more thing about Gus's character, which is kind of the, the final unthinking quality of this movie. Yeah. Because, I mean, even though we all like Gus. Yeah. I mean, really, we do. But the fact is, if you go through the movie, at, 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 at every point of the film, Gus is, is totally acting in, in self-preservation. Yeah, he, he, he does not. I do not want to go to jail because they have rapists and rapists that rape robbers. And yeah. like he, he just he just doesn't want to go to jail. So he harms people, at least harms people in Colombia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, starts all kinds of, of fights at gas stations because there's a gas shortage. Yeah. And we know that he's beginning to have doubts about all of this. And he he really doesn't want to do a lot of this stuff all along the way. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons we like him. But then suddenly, but look at this boss. I want to build this supercomputer that figures out out everyone's weaknesses and wipes them out. Yeah. And it's like, okay, isn't that a bit of a leap? This guy who's struggling, who actually doesn't seem to want to do anything except drive the Ferrari and is being kind of, uh, 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 manipulated into doing things he doesn't want to do, yeah. but not this. He spent all this time drawing all this stuff on these uh, bits of paper and 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 on <laughs> cigarette carts. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Well, and and suddenly he wants to create this supercomputer that will defeat anybody. Why? Well, Why does he do this? Well, see, that's that's absolutely right, and and he uses that actually to leverage those two, the the main villains, Vera and Ross. Yeah. Uh, and that does go back to the laziness of this whole project, because there was a much easy, there was a much more interesting hook here. Ross could have been a much more interesting villain by using Gus to get what he wants without necessarily telling Gus. You know, he could have been like nurturing this savant type character, this guy who's brilliant, who mm-hmm. who he sees like a, like sketching his ultimate design for the computer that he wants, the supercomputer, the brainiac, perhaps. Uh, and that could have been, I mean, that could have been really subtle. It could have been like, he, he could have been this guy, not bumbling necessarily, but not really paying attention to the villain's as much as they were paying attention to him. And they could have used that need 
for access to technology in a way that was really interesting. They, they could have used, they could have roped in the Lorelei character in a lot of ways too, who she could have been like seeing where Gus isn't, they could have played him as not a necessarily worldly guy, but just a really brilliant guy who's trying to figure out the next problem, right? Right. And they could have used her, the secretly smart person who's just, who's pretending to be a dumb, attractive woman uh, to get close to money, right? That's, that's, right? I think that's what her hook is. Yeah. Um, and she could have seen how they were manipulating Gus and, you know, started to, that, that could have been an interesting dynamic among the bad guys. That doesn't happen at all in this film, but. Yeah, we're, we are writing a better movie, right? right. Absolutely. I mean, that's really what we've been doing. We, we've been writing a better movie that didn't get made. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with your Brainiac thing, by the way. I, I actually, they don't say Brainiac, but yeah. that's, that's really what this is. This is Brainiac. I mean, yeah. But, but I, where I'm going with the Gus thing, and I never noticed this as a kid, but. Yeah. Gus, Superman makes the decision to let him off the hook. And he's culpable for... I mean, Gus, I yeah. mean, Gus, Gus has got to go to jail. <laughs> yeah. Gus has got to go to jail. At least for the computer. Yeah. I mean, at, because that was his idea. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it was kind of then stolen from him. Yeah. But it was but it was his idea, it was his design. And, and he was and he used that as the way for them to keep him he's basically saying, if you want me to stay around here, you gotta do this for me. He wanted more. Yeah. That was the thing that he says. He's like, I don't know if I'm getting paid enough. Is I mean that, that basically yeah. Yeah. That's, that's basically where he comes out at. And and even though, like you said, he's a little queasy about some of the stuff that they do, he does like he does like the Ferraris. Like you said, he, he like he wants this supercomputer. Um, mm-hmm. No, Gus. Uh, I mean, Gus does the right thing in the end, but he's at least got to do you know two to five. I think. But Superman just lets him go, and then and then and recommends him for a job. Yeah. He doesn't even know him. Doesn't know him. Nope. Nope. Uh, yeah. And he yeah. So and again, that comes back to this this thing that I don't like that in the Lester films, especially, is this kind of thoughtlessness on Clark's part where he'll, he seems to do things, especially for people who do things for him, you know? Mm, I mean, of course yeah. he saves people from cars flooding over fire hydrants and, and he saved the whole Eastern seaboard from a cloud of deadly gas that was gonna, yeah. uh, it was gonna happen if that acid had gotten too hot. I don't like that kind of transactional attitude that Clark seems to, this is a very, this is a very self, focused kind of, I won't say self-centered, but right. it's certainly narrow, um, yeah. which is okay. I don't mind that, but I would like to see that tension more spelled out. So, because um, to kind of close out, because yeah. there is a final scene of Lana, because she and Ricky do make it to Metropolis. Yeah. Uh, something that I like about Lana and uh, the way Annette O'Toole plays her, that, that I think is interesting, and we'll see it again in the next film, is that Lana likes Clark, not Superman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I find that interesting. And there, and there is a neat little exchange there at the end where uh, Lois sees that, because Lois is now returned, and um, she sees that Clark gave her this massive ring. And Lois... <laughs> it's huge, yeah. Yeah. And Lois is a little jealous. Yeah, yeah. And, and I kind of like that. I kind of like the... Uh, because she, you know, she, she's... Clark is her friend, and yeah. and the next and the next film goes into that pretty well. 
Yeah, yeah. Clark is her friend. She's very protective of him. Um, and, but, but she never would think that that Clark would ever, that any woman would ever find him interesting. And then suddenly a woman does and she's a little jealous. And, and so, so that was kind of a neat little moment. So that's Superman 3. So this is the part where we generally leave a verdict about the film and owing to the vagaries of podcasting and recording and editing, I've lost uh, our original verdict. So I have to deliver it by myself today. Jason liked the film a little more than I did, but we both kind of think that it's just not a very good movie. It doesn't fit with the the previous two films, and it changes tone too dramatically to really work. Should you watch it? Should you not? I would, I would say you could avoid it and live a full and happy life. But if you're a completist like both Jason and I are, maybe you give it a watch and tell us what you think. So that's it, the verdict, which is a big thumbs down. Remember to leave us a five-star review or otherwise positive words at Apple uh, Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Share us with your friends on social media. And uh, remember, you can reach us at lordmovies39 at gmail.com or you can comment at the, uh, the Podbean, through the Podbean app. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And we'll see you next week where we'll close out the Superman show. All right, guys, bye-bye.